thank you for all that has prepared us this morning for this moment. Father, we first uh, know, Lord, that we have several families this morning that are not here. Uh, Due to various and sundry reasons, we pray, Father, for them, as many of them will be making their way back here this afternoon. And we pray, Father, that you would keep them safe. But now we are here, Father, we are in this moment, we are opening your word, and so we ask you to meet with us, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our life, and I pray you would help me be clear and effective in preaching your word to your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this is the last message in this series I've been doing on fruitfulness. What I mean by fruitfulness is the desire to have a life uh, that you produce things in your life that will outlive you. Things that are going to be for the purpose of, uh, of advancing Jesus' kingdom and giving glory to him. Jesus commands his followers to bear fruit. Uh, we are told in the Bible that the Christian will bear fruit. And we are told in the Bible that the Christian should pursue uh, bearing fruit. Now in this last message, I want to talk to you about good works. You see that in your bulletin. Let me explain what I mean. Several years ago, I was at the North Platte Hospital at a clergy meeting, and we were meeting with uh, the, the head of the hospital, and they were sharing with us that day the amount of people who come to the emergency room, particularly during the winter, uh, for things other than medical emergencies. He was talking about how some will come to the emergency room simply because they're lonely. They spend so much of their time by themselves, and so they'll show up at the emergency room and say, hey... I have this feeling, and and so they'll run tests. But the reality is they're just there because they're lonely. He says they have people who show up at the emergency room because their heat doesn't work, and and this is really the only place they could go, and and so they're there at the emergency room. And then there are some who really don't have any great uh, medical needs. Really, they're only there because there wasn't anybody at home to help them take their medicine. And so this meeting was about uh, this head of the hospital asking this group of pastors if they would be willing to go back to their congregation and ask them to do the good works that would be necessary to alleviate this problem. In my travels at different churches and speaking at different churches, I've seen all sorts of good work ministries. Of course, you know, we have food pantries. Uh, Some people have clothing uh, closets. I've seen churches do things like build a whole garage for the purpose of helping the poorer members of their community with basic uh, car maintenance. Uh, and I've even, I even know of a church that established their own payday loan program. And they were going to charge, they do, they charge 0% for a payday loan. And the purpose of this was to undercut the predatory lenders in their community who were charging anywhere from 20 to 25% on a $300 loan. I think you understand what I'm getting at here. We're talking about uh, cutting somebody's grass. We're talking about babysitting so a couple can uh, go out for a date night. We're talking about uh, you know, hosting a dinner. We're talking about bringing people dinner. Raising money, maybe, for people who uh, can't pay their medical bills. These are all examples of good works. I have another one for you this morning. It is the Christmas season, and, and this is the rare time in our culture anymore where our faith and what's going on in the world around us are kind of intersecting. 
I have this morning about five copies of a book that you could hand to somebody. Perhaps they need a gospel encouragement during this time of year. Maybe they're dealing with something this time of year. Or it could be to somebody who needs to hear the gospel uh, that you could uh, give one of these to them. And I would say to you that giving one of these books would count as a good work. And I have about five copies of that if you would like one to take one to somebody. It's very clear that good works are supposed to be a central part of the Christian life. Uh, In Ephesians, the Bible tells us that God saves us and then he has work for us to do. Uh, In 1 Peter, we're told that we are to do good works so that when the world watches us, it ends up praising our Father in heaven. And so what I want to argue with you this morning, or want to bring the argument to you this morning, that doing good works before a watching world is a necessary part of fruitfulness in a Christian life and in a Christian church. So doing good works before a watching world is a necessary part of bearing fruit in your Christian life. I have three points for you this morning. Number one, number one, we have been set free to do good works. We have been set free to do good works. Verses one through four. Now, sometimes in the Bible, you have to get a running start. Uh, And here's one of those places. You kind of have to back up into chapter seven and remind yourself of what he has just said. And at the end of chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says, I want to do the right thing. I want to do good things. But when I go out and I try to do good things, I end up doing the wrong thing. And every time I try to keep myself from doing the wrong thing, I still do the wrong thing. And so he gives to, gets to this climax where he says, who can deliver me from this body of death? Who can keep me or deliver me from this body that is constantly leading me into doing the wrong thing? And of course, the answer he gives at the end of chapter 7 is thanks be to God for Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying, look, rule keeping didn't help me. It didn't help me overcome my sin problem. He's saying beating myself up did not help me when it came to dealing with my sin problem. Only when I got to faith in Christ do we get to chapter 8, verse 1, in the pronunciation of no condemnation. If you read the continue in the text and read the explanation here, the idea there is that he's saying, look, God knew that on my own I couldn't be perfect. But God also knew that I needed to be perfect in in order to be acceptable to him. So to deal with this problem, he sent his son Jesus to be a human, to be perfect, so that my sin could be paid for and I would be released from ever having to pay for my own sin. And what this means for the Christian is simply... I owe God no debt for my sin because it has been all paid for by the blood of Christ. And what it also means in this text is that there's going to be no new condemnation. Every Christian I know still sins after they become a Christian. But this verdict, this determination, this edict of no condemnation even goes into my Christian life. I am You are 100% free from ever being condemned for not being perfect. 
And then you get to verse 4 in this last little phrase. So that the law would be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Really what the Bible is saying, what the Apostle is saying is something he said in chapter 6. Something he said at the beginning of chapter 7. And is now saying it again. You have not been saved. You are not a Christian. You have not had your sins paid for in order to run right back to those sins. You have been saved so that the law would be fulfilled, or in other words, so that you could be free to do good works. Now, there are two ways this should impact your life. This this declaration of no condemnation, here's how it sets you free. Number one, the first way that this sets you free is this. You have been set free from the cycle of performance. You have been set free from a cycle of performance. If God declares you innocent, all your debt paid by the blood of Christ, there is not a single entity in the world, not your spouse, not your neighbor, not your sister, not anybody, who can declare you guilty. Not a single one. Now here's what I'm trying to aim at. The reality is, as I said, as Christians, we still sin. The problem is, is some of us, when we sin, we think that now we have fallen into condemnation. And so now you have to try a little harder. I've got to make sure I, I go to church a little bit more. Maybe I sing a little louder. Maybe I try to do this thing or I try to do that thing. And you feel a little better, and then you sin again, and you go, well, now I'm back into condemnation. Maybe I need to read my Bible a little longer. Maybe you need to say longer prayers. The idea here is that this tendency to to dog us, this cycle of performance has a tendency to dog us, and it tires us. And you have been set free from ever having to perform. If you're suffering in your life, if you're having marital difficulties in your life, if you're feeling like an epic failure as a parent, none of those things can ever condemn you. You have been set free from the the tiresome cycle of performance, the thing that drains all the joy that comes from doing good works for Jesus. You do not have to perform because you have been declared no condemnation. You are not guilty, and nobody can overturn that. The second way this should impact your life is to understand that you have an example You have a motivation to do good works that is free from selfish ambition. You have been set free from doing good works for selfish ambition. Let's just be honest together. It's pretty easy to get psyched up to do good works when we know there's a potential for our advantage. You say, you know what, I I would love to go to work and do a great job. And so we're motivated Maybe by the idea, if I go to work and I, and I do a good job, maybe I'll get the raise. Or I might say, you know what, I'm going to do this thing for my spouse so that they would change and maybe I would like them a little more. We can be very motivated out of selfish ambition, but the Bible calls us, instead of selfish ambition, to serve or to take care of each other with humility. For example, husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. 
He is to follow this pattern of dying or living for her without any expectation of gain for him. Sometimes we have a tendency to want to do the things we're supposed to do because we think we might get recognition. We think it's the thing that's going to give us significance. We think it's the the thing that is going to get people to like us. But the thing is, Christ died for you, and he died for you because God loves you. And so there's no need to chase after recognition. There's no need to chase after significance. There's no need to chase after popularity. The example you have in front of you is to do good works because you already have the greatest treasure, God himself. And so you've been set free to do these things from, the, from a tireless cycle of performance And you've been set free from being motivated by selfish ambition. But let me give you the second point this morning. We have been empowered by the Holy Spirit for good works. We have been empowered by the Holy Spirit for good works. Verses 5 through 11. Again, at the end of verse 4, he says, We've been set free to fulfill the law, but only... If we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And from verses 5 to 11, he's going to keep making this comparison. He says, look, the, the, the Christian walks in the spirit, not in the flesh. And if you walk in the flesh, it is a sign that you are not a Christian. That's the essence of what he's saying here. Now, this term walk is a biblical word to describe the way you live. So whatever it is that you do between the moment you wake up to the time you go to bed, whatever takes place in that space in your life, that is your walk. Now, we also have to clarify something here because the text tells us the way we walk is primarily determined by the way we think. You notice in the text, he says, look, those who walk in the flesh have the mind of the flesh. Those who walk in the spirit have the mind of the spirit. And this leads me to two questions. First of all, what's on the spirit's mind? What does the spirit, what does the Holy Spirit think about? The Bible tells us that the primary focus of the Holy Spirit is the glory of Jesus Christ. What does the spirit think about? He thinks about the glory of or finding glory, or getting glory for Jesus Christ. And that leads to the second question, what does the mind of the flesh, what does the flesh think about? Well, the Bible tells us the flesh thinks about lust. The flesh thinks about covetousness. The flesh thinks about pride. And so what the text is saying, he's saying, look, there there are those who get up and they go to work and they say, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to do a good job so I can have a testimony for Jesus to my coworkers." The mind of the spirit. Another person gets up and goes to work and says, I'm going to do a good job so I can get a raise and buy a boat that bi- that's bigger than Frank's. One thinks in the spirit and so walks in the spirit and one thinks in the flesh and so walks in the flesh. But verse 11 gives us one more detail. The Christian has the Holy Spirit inside of them. Described here as that power which raised Jesus from the dead. Let me explain it this way. In the book of Ephesians, we're told that this power that you possess with the Holy Spirit, is it kind of comes in a threefold manifestation. First of all, because all Christians have the Holy Spirit, all Christians have potential power to do good works. 
It exists, or I should say the, the power to do good works exists in you. And then the Bible describes when you are walking along, you're, you're living your life, you're going to come across opportunities to do good work. And when those opportunities come, now it moves from just being present in your life, the Holy Spirit's power becomes now potential in your life. But the Bible is very clear about the fact that from being existing in your life to potential to actually making its way out, having the Holy Spirit's power work in your life is not unleashed until the activity has begun. So let me maybe put it this way. So all week I work on a sermon. So I'm I'm a believer. I'm possessed by the Holy Spirit. And so all week as I work on this sermon, I am possessed. The potential for power is there. And as I dig into the text, that potential begins to grow. But I remind myself that if the power of the Spirit's going to come, it's only going to come when I actually preach the message. And that's how the Holy Spirit's power works in your life. And there are two ways that this needs to work out in your good works. Number one, number one, the Holy Spirit's power is primarily going to be seen in the ordinary. If you want to understand or you want to see where the Holy Spirit works its way into your life and out of your life, look in the places of the ordinary. These are just two examples. Don't take them any further than being examples. But God might someday move you to give a large amount of money to the church. I don't expect it. I'm just saying it might happen. But the primary way the power of the Holy Spirit is going to make its way out in your life is through faithful giving. Ordinary. The ordinary check you write or the ordinary amount of money you give on a weekly or monthly basis, that's where the power of the Holy Spirit is going to primarily make its way out of your life. Over the course of a year, give you another example. Over the course of a year, uh, we have as a church a number of special Sundays. Now, God might do a work in your life when there's somebody other than me preaching. In fact, I would say there's a high probability of that. But the reality is the ordinary power of this, the ordinary working of the Holy Spirit's power in your life is going to be through regularly sitting under Bible and gospel teaching at your, at the local level. And so under, maybe I can put it this way. A man might buy his girlfriend or wife flowers. He'll come home maybe with them and she's going to feel all good inside. She's got fuzzy feelings. Oh, he really does love me. And he might do that once or twice a year. But anybody who's been married for any length of time knows this. That real maturity of love comes in the way he treats her every day. I remember years ago as an upperclassman at Northland, I was engaged to Carol. And I was talking to another guy who was engaged. And we were talking about engaged guys things. And what do guys who are engaged think about? Money. And so we were sitting there discussing what we were going to do. You know, the things that we worried about were how was I going to take care of my wife? How was I going to, if we had kids, what we were going to do? And so we're sitting there just kind of talking, talking about it. And I remember saying to him, so um, are you giving on a regular basis? He says, no. He says, I, I have a job, but I don't make a whole lot. So I just kind of, I'm keeping it aside for the wedding. And I, and I kind of sat there and I said to him, you know, not trying to, to, to say anything other than this. Why would you ask God to bless your finances if you're not doing the one thing you know you're supposed to do? 
And I would tell you that in your Christian life, eight out of, in counseling and times when people come to see me, eight out of ten times the issue is they're not even doing the things they know they're supposed to do. So if you have a question like, should I marry this guy or should I marry this girl? Should I move to Timbuktu? If you have those kind of questions in your life, here's what I would tell you. I would tell you to keep doing whatever it is you're doing. Don't, uh, don't become faithless. And what I mean by that is don't become the kind of person who said, they were gonna, who said to their friend, I will help you move, and then say, you know what, I can't make it to help you move because I need to go see my boyfriend and stare deeply into his eyes. Don't become that person. Do the things you know you're supposed to be doing. Regularly attend worship and fellowship with other believers. Do your job, whether it's school or work. Tell the truth. These are simple things. And I would tell you that if you can do all of these things, like tell the truth and do your job and remain faithful, and at the end of the day you still want to marry the guy or still want to marry the girl, then get married. If you still want to move to Timbuktu, move to Timbuktu. God's never going to ask you to get outside of doing what he wants you to do in order for you to do the thing that you want to do. And you say, that's really tough. Yes, but that's why you have the Holy Spirit, to empower you to do those things so that you can eventually wind up in the place that God wants you to be. Do good works for Jesus, and the Spirit will work in you. And this brings me to number three. Lastly, this morning, God's children... God's children do good works. Verses 12 to 17. Now, in this part of the text, there's going to be a contrast. The contrast here is going to be between the indebted slave and the child. It's an Old Testament picture. The Old Testament, a person, if they were in financial trouble, would sell their land. And most of these arrangements, when you sold your land, that meant you went to work for the guy you sold it to. So you became an employee. And the idea was, is you're not going to work for this guy until you do all the work necessary to buy the land back. And so this is your motivation to get up every day. I've got to go to work. Now, the thing is, if you fell too far behind, you could go to jail. If you fell too far behind, you could lose the land permanently uh, for a period of time. So your children would be kicked out of their home. You might be responsible for the poverty of your grandchildren. And so you, got, you get up every day, whether you're sick or sore or tired, and you do the work necessary. That's the indebted servant. But the point of the text is that the Christian is not the indebted servant. The Christian is the child. The child this is a radically different position, you see, because the child doesn't live in fear of what God's going to do if we don't perform. There is no threat of foreclosure. There's no threat of bankruptcy. There's, there's no threat of, of losing the place to live. Instead, you see here in the text, instead of fearing what will happen if we don't perform, we have a relationship now with God that if we were to fall short, if we were to struggle, even if we were to sin, we have a relationship with God where we can still cry out, Abba, Father. And you see in the text the presence of the Holy Spirit, the working of the Holy Spirit. That is the, the evidence that we are children, that we are inheritors of the promised kingdom, the joint heirs with Christ. But then we get this last little short statement. 
provided we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. This last statement is basically saying this, the proof is in the pudding. What I'm sharing with you this morning is, is not just theological, it's not just theoretical. This is not just for you to learn in a sermon on Sunday morning. The, the being a child of God makes its way out into your life. So the contrast here is the indebted servant wakes up every day afraid and goes and does good work. But the child of God wakes up every day and goes and does the good works, knowing he or she is a child without anything to fear. And if we make our way through the rest of the New Testament, this is all confirmed for us. In Galatians, we're told that if we have opportunity to do good works for somebody, we do them, especially if it's a fellow believer. In the book of Titus, we're told that in part, God saves people to make them zealous for good works. In Hebrews, we're told that we're supposed to, as a church, inspire each other to do good works. In the book of James, we're told that genuine faith makes it way out into good works. And as I mentioned in 1 Peter, we're told that good works are a part of our testimony to the community, leading them to the worship of God. Maybe you can think about it this way. One of the things that comes with the holiday season is yard decorations. From Halloween all the way through Christmas, and sometimes for some people even into March, their, their, uh, their decorations are up in the front yard. And you go by and you see them, and you know what kind of time of year it is. In that same sense, the Bible is saying this is our yard decoration. Good works are our yard decorations. They're supposed to be not just in our front yard, but all over our community. And they're supposed to be up all year. And again, the Bible gives us lots of examples. Make visits, give care to the widows. Have mercy ministries to fatherless children. Bring them warm coats. Feed them dinner. Help them put up, put up the uh, basketball hoop they got for Christmas. Or maybe be the one to get them the basketball hoop for Christmas. We're supposed to visit the sick and their suffering. We're supposed to weep with those who are mourning. We're called to celebrate other people's good fortune. We're supposed to give honor and be faithful. Here, here's one for you. Give honor. Be faithful. Make bread. Buy gift cards. Or at the very least, walk up to your kid's school teacher, their Sunday school teacher, their ball coach, and say, thank you. James tells us we show off our faith by good works. And that true faith, true faith in Christ, is never found free of good works. So here's the most obvious question to ask. Where are your good works? You've been set free from the burden of performance. You've been set free from being motivated by selfish ambition. You've been given the Holy Spirit who can prompt you to good works, who can empower you to good works, and help you do the things that come, uh, take advantage of the opportunities that come across. And if you're a Christian this morning, you're a child of God, and God's children do good works. So as the old song goes, don't hide it under a bushel. Don't let Satan it out. But shine it all over Maxwell. Shine it all over the area. And let the world see your good works so they will glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would make us a people zealous for good works. I pray we would never be a people whose faith is absent of good works. And I pray, Father, that you would do these things because we have been set free in Christ. We have been set free, Father, from having to be afraid of what would happen if we don't perform.
We have been freed, Father, from being motivated by, uh, by selfish ambition. All because of Christ's death for us. And so I pray, Father, you would make us those kind of people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.